Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. And I want to begin uh, this morning by reading uh, for us from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 13, 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked, Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, this is uh, week two in our nine-week series for the beginning of 2022 called Think Again, Nine Beliefs That Christians should reconsider. Last week, Dr. Lodal addressed the notion that some of us have or have had when it comes to doubt, that that doubt is the sign of a weak faith. It is, in fact, quite the opposite. Our ability to doubt, to, to question, to interrogate what we think and believe even as we walk by faith and not by sight, reveals both intellectual honesty and spiritual courage. Two significant virtues that I would encourage all of us to pursue in the coming year. This week, we are rethinking the common idea that God is the source of natural disasters, and other misfortune. I mean, after all, insurance companies have an exclusion for acts of God in their insurance policy language, right? Now, following our service, Dr. Lodal will be here for those who want to dig deeper into this topic, even online, and uh, and he may even uh, push back on some things I say. I don't know, but we shall see. But I want to start today with the story of a of a preacher who went 
to visit a parishioner who also happened to be a farmer. And if you are a member of PETA, just plug your ears for a little minute. As the preacher and the farmer were visiting, the farmer's son bolted into the house carrying a dead rat by its tail. In his rush, the, the boy did not notice that the preacher was in the room on the other side of his father. And so he hurried towards his father and he said, Dad, I found this old rat in the barn. I hit him with a board. Then I threw him against the wall. And then I stomped on him. At that moment, the boy saw the preacher and not missing a beat, he said solemnly, and then, Pastor, the Lord called him home. <laughs> now, I, I didn't mean to traumatize any, any animal lovers, uh, but the story illustrates how God often gets blamed for things that God does not do. A child dies of leukemia, and people say, God must have needed another angel in heaven. A young mother dies of breast cancer, and, and some people say God works in mysterious ways. A family is killed by a, a drunk driver, and people say we, we must trust that God has reasons that we don't understand. When our own daughter was diagnosed with an incurable uh, and rare autoimmune condition, somebody said, God gives his hardest battles to his strongest warriors. Not for a second do I believe that God gave our daughter any illness for any reason. And yet, I do know these, these responses are often well-intentioned attempts to find meaning and comfort in the midst of tragedy and, and grief and confusion by claiming God is in control. However well-intentioned, this type of thinking can lead to some incredibly harmful theological claims. For example, in the midst of the the AIDS crisis, many of you will recall that one uh, televangelist at least said that AIDS was a punishment from God upon homosexuals. Was it also a punishment upon hemophiliacs who received contaminated blood transfusions? Several televangelists declared that 9-11 was God's retribution for America's sins. One saying that abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, and the ACLU had so angered God that God permitted the terrorists to punish America. And unfortunately, I could share too many more examples of this type of thinking. What we're talking about here is the idea of divine providence. God's involvement, sometimes supernatural involvement, in, in human and natural affairs. In spite of pandemics and other natural disasters, many hold this view of divine providence along the lines that I've just described. What we might call, call omni-causation. The idea that if something happens, 
good or bad, it is part of God's sovereign plan and purpose. Now, one strand of Scripture, particularly Deuteronomy and parts of Proverbs, claims that people get what they deserve. Good people are blessed, bad people are punished. And while that seems fair, it doesn't really resonate with our real-life experience, does it? A, a biblical literalist would point to the words of Isaiah 45, 6 through 7, where the prophet reports these as God's words. There is no one but me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success, and I create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Clearly, then, there is a biblical warrant for this view, this omni-causation. But there's another strand in Scripture, most notably Job, which rebuffs omni-causation. And neither does Jesus seem to uh, embrace this view. For example, in Matthew 5, 45, Jesus points out that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. That's very different than what we read in Deuteronomy and Proverbs. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus teaches that God's power is not like that of a vindictive tyrant, but of a caring father. And in our reading from today, in Luke 13, 1 through 9, Jesus outright rejects omnicausation. And as we explore this passage, I'm just going to tip my hand and say that I'm going to go with Jesus on this. As Luke reveals two calamities, one reported by the audience and then one introduced by Jesus, lead Jesus to invite repentance from those that he is teaching. The first example involves the execution of a group of Galilean worshipers in the Jerusalem temple by the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The second recalls the demise of 18 citizens crushed by the accidental collapse of the Tower of Siloam. Well, there are a few verses in Deuteronomy that would allow us to engage in some victim blaming or to assume that some act of disobedience provoked God's wrathful reprisal through enemy agents. Jesus outright rejects the idea that a violent attack by Pontius Pilate then or 9-11 now or a natural disaster a tower collapse then, or a tornado now, are part of God's purpose and plan. And so I agree with Martin Thielen, who writes, God does not have a weekly quota of malignant tumors to distribute, heart attacks to pass out, or battlefield wounds to inflict. But we also need to recognize how this notion of, of divine providence works in the opposite direction. Like when we talk about being blessed by God when something good befalls us. 
Again, this is well-intentioned. Crediting God can be an expression of, of both gratitude and humility. But God's weekly quotas also do not include a certain number of pregnancies to fulfill, stock portfolios to lift, or expensive cars to distribute. God is not Santa Claus. Making a list, checking it twice, punishing the naughty, and rewarding the nice. Though we often confuse the two. So I want to make three points that I hope are helpful to those who've struggled with this idea that God causes natural disasters or other misfortune. And first, it is important to note that Scripture does not speak in a unified voice when it comes to God's providence. We've seen that already. While Jesus outright rejects omnicausation, the testimony of the Old Testament is also mixed. So if a friend throws a proof text at you, saying that nothing happens without God's permission, you may want to ask them nicely what they think Jesus is teaching in Luke 13, 1 through 9, or in the book of Job, or in many others I could point out, but I want to be brief. Second, I want to suggest that many of our struggles with the question of divine providence are rooted in how we typically think of, and I would say misunderstand, divine power. The Apostle Paul ponders this deeply in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, because Jesus' death on a cross is, by worldly, by human standards, weakness and not power. Paul claims, therefore, that what to human eyes is shameful and weak and ineffective is actually God's own glory and strength. We have to change our way of thinking. Paul is inviting us, my friends, to metanoia. We looked at this a couple uh, weeks ago, this word we translate as repentance. Paul is inviting us to conversion, to repentance, to a complete turnaround and rethinking of our notions of divine power and how God exercises God's power. While there's much to say on this, the cross reveals ultimately that God's power is self-giving love, not vindictive wrath is why I think we have such a hard time getting our heads around it. It's so different than the ways we think of power. But this leads to a third point. In the passage, Jesus has, has twice called those he is teaching to repentance. I would suggest that one reason, there's a few, but there's one reason for this invitation that stands out to me. It is, I think, to challenge the smug assumptions of superior piety by those who enjoy good fortune, even as bad things are happening to other people. Why do I say that? Well, think again 
to the examples I used of 9-11, of, of the AIDS crisis. Isn't one reason that we, we cast judgments like that? It's really a tactic to esteem ourselves for being more morally upright than those we consider to be more obvious sinners. It's our way of saying, yeah, we're doing okay. Now, I'm not going to suggest, however, that we discard the, the notion of divine providence altogether. Well, I align with, with Jesus in, in saying that God is not the author of natural disasters or other misfortune. The persistent witness of Scripture is that God can and does redeem suffering when it comes to us, unbidden. Uh, many of you probably read uh, The Shack. It was a bestseller. It's not the best uh, literature, but there are some really good theological ideas in it, not every one of them. Uh, but we want to take what's good, and, and certainly this is consistent with uh, what Jesus is saying. God tells a grieving father in this, this novel, it says, just because I work incredible good out of unspeakable tragedies does not mean I orchestrate the tragedies. That's right in line with what Jesus is saying. And it, it, it runs more throughout Scripture. This week I had coffee with somebody that I hope uh, will become a friend. I just played golf with them a couple times, happened to be on the course at the same time. And, um, and I had learned his oldest daughter, Sophie, had, had died four years ago. And it is impossible for him not to think of Sophie over the holidays because Sophie was born on December 25th. Soon after her birth, a couple days, Sophie had suffered a, a seizure. And then she had dealt with cerebral palsy throughout the rest of her life. Now, her father told me that when his baby, his infant daughter, had suffered that seizure, he, as I'm sure we all would do, went to the chapel of the hospital and prayed for a miracle. That somehow God would reveal God's self and, and heal his daughter. When she died, 15 years later, her heart saved the life of one 12-year-old girl. Her liver, a 9-year-old girl. And each of her kidneys went to two other women, one who wrote a beautiful letter of gratitude. Her father sees this as the miracle that he prayed for. Not as he'd hoped nor imagined when he was praying, but miraculous nonetheless. This is the power of self-giving love that runs throughout Scripture. One other thing struck me as we were talking. While Sophie had never been able to communicate verbally, her father shared with me that whenever she greeted anyone... It was with her arms outstretched, like this. Now, does anyone else come to mind when you think of arms outstretched like this? 
if and when we are able to finally comprehend God's power. It will be when we come to know that it is not anything like fists clenched for a fight or retribution. And everything like Jesus's arms outstretched to embrace us in a life-giving, life-saving, life-redeeming love. May we all come to know that. Let's be in prayer. Holy God, on this morning, as we celebrate your, your love and, and the ways that you are at work in the world, I first want to say thank you for Jerry Swisher, who knew your love in such a powerful way and shared that love with so many of us who were blessed by our time with her. What a magnificent witness. God, I, I too, I want to lift up my friend and his family as they remember again the passing of Sophie, but, but more so her life and all the goodness that she brought into the world. God, help us in this coming year to let go of our ideas of what you are like and to embrace something different as far as your power. Coming to know that your almightiness is a love that we can barely comprehend. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Christ. Amen.